Falsha, 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 Akharjagil. Welcome to episode 88 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm your host, Anla O'Carlan, half of the Rebel Matters team, the other half being Vicky Lingen, who is constantly in the background doing a lot of the donkey work to get the Rebel Matters episodes out there. And this week's episode is the very first of 2021 where we have a guest in the virtual Rebel Matters studio and the guest this week is Ian Lynch who many of you might be familiar with from being in the band Lankham or more recently from his class podcast Fire Drawn Year of which I am a massive fan and also a patron. We went a pretty unconventional route for this episode, talking about the fighting fantasy game books that Ian has been a fan of ever since he was about eight or nine years old, and we even played a bit of one of Ian's favourite books. We dipped the toe into the world of dungeon synth music, which Ian has been getting into during these lockdown times. We talked about the Fire Drawn Year podcast and how it came about and how it's developed over the last year or so. And we talked a little bit about what Lankham have been up to recently. This episode is going to be just like listening in on two mates having a chat, which is always uh, always makes for a nice podcast. So I really think you are going to enjoy this episode. A couple of wee updates before we get stuck into the chat with Ian. First of all, Thanks very much to Owen O'Sullivan who gave us a lovely write-up in the Examiner last week and gave a special mention to the opening of the show, Falsha, 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 Akharja Gale. Now that that's been in the newspaper, I feel like we're going to have to keep it going. And also a special shout out to Emmett Walsh, who we commissioned to do a piece of art for our patrons as any of the patrons of the show will already know we have three tiers of support over on patreon.com based on three of our favorite native irish trees Salyach, dar and Fwinchog, or willow oak and ash and we wanted to do something special for the patrons so emmet um designed this beautiful poster and it's been a while in the making because we wanted to get it right and we were thinking about what we could put into the poster in the first place and then we were working on the designs and a little coat to go with the poster and it's now ready. So thanks a million to Emmett. The poster is of a past guest of the podcast and a real hero of mine and someone who made his life work be in service to the community that he was a part of and in support of the people of West Belfast and long-term listeners of the podcast will probably have already listened to episode 26 with Father Des Wilson and we're really honoured to be able to make this wee poster in honour of Father Des and as a small token of appreciation to the patrons who have been helping us keep the Rebel Matters podcast on the road. Anyway, we think it is a lovely poster and a beautiful piece of art and it has a lovely quote from episode 27, which was the episode with Father Des 
on the poster as well. So if you want to see the poster and check out the various tiers of support for the Rebel Matters podcast, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters. Right, let's get stuck into episode 88 with Antusel Ian O'Lynchy. Buenigi Saltasa Karja. Thanks a million, first of all, for doing the podcast. Well, thanks a million for having me. Um, yeah, love, love Rebel Matters. I've been listening to it for a while now, and uh, just hope I can, um, yeah, just hope I can hold my own with all, up there with all the other deadly guests you've had over just, the last while. I was just thinking there beforehand that the last time we seen each other in person was actually in America, and it was coming up on nearly a year ago now. Like it was mid or yeah. Mid March last year, when it was kind of a surreal enough experience being out there at that time, wasn't it? it? It was. I mean, it was it was surreal enough without any of the like COVID stuff that was going on anyway. Like you know, <laughs> it was a yeah, it was a mad experience. And then just I th- when was the last day we saw you was outside that really dirty, greasy cafe. That's right, the diner. Yeah, yeah. All <laughs> oh, the food, I couldn't even eat the food out of that. It was <laughs> fucking dirty, man. <laughs> so dirty. Yeah, I think it was like the only. I guess the food is on an, on another level, isn't it over there? Oh, uh, it's it's like and you can't. It's so hard to even try to eat healthy over there. You know, you kind of just have to give up, and then you come home and you're just feeling horrible for weeks afterwards. You know, uh, you know all that. It takes ages for that stuff to get out of your system. That, I think that gig, um, used, that, gig, that gig you did there that night before that was in some was it in like Springfield or something? It was called. I remember it was somewhere outside of Boston, and then, yeah. We went back to the B&B that night and had the crack in the B&B, or in the B&B. And then I think that after that, then all the rest of the gigs were cancelled and we were gone back to, we were gone actually after the day we seen you in the diner. We yeah, the I think, I, yeah, I think we did one more after that. We did one more down in Virginia and then the, yeah, it was just the other ones after that were cancelled and we just had to try and get the hell out of there as fast as we could. Because um, yeah, you, I mean, you, I know you were talking to Rady on, about it all on the other episode. But oh, were you? Were you talking to Rady about this? Or was it a different interview? Signal of yeah, and just no. trying to get out on time. No, it was, oh, it was another. It was another interview I heard with her where she was talking to someone. But um, <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was really just crazy trying to get out there on time because our, our flight was cancelled, and then we were just like, "Fuck! Are all the flights going to be cancelled now? Are we going to be stuck in the states when this goes down? Like, is this the end of the world? What's happening?" And. Uh, <laughs> Just yeah, you actually used the money from the Choice Awards that we just wanted that, and it just went into our account. I think like the day before to buy new tickets home, and yeah, just splurged all on that. Managed to get another flight back, and we're just like thanking our lucky stars that we could actually make it back on time. It was yeah, it was a very very strange experience. Um, we were uh, we had to drop back the amps we had rented out. A friend of ours, Liam Creel, he drove 
drove us with them into like downtown Manhattan, you know, like somewhere you'd only seen on, on movies and stuff in the past. But uh, just the whole place completely deserted, like a ghost town. It was like proper, like 28 days later kind of thing. But just seeing the inside of a city on that scale and, you know, a kind of such an iconic place, you know, as New York being totally empty. It was just like, it was, yeah, it was pretty nerve wracking. It feels that we're kind of closing the loop here now because the Choice Awards must have been something on the 6th of March or something like that because I was in Vickers Street. Something like that, yeah. Choice Awards. Oh, no way. That's weird. That that you had won it. (laughs) Kane was up doing the... Yeah, yeah. When your bus was broken down on the side of the road somewhere in America. And then the next morning, I went to America. You left to the... Oh, Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> we were in Manhattan when actually it was mental. It was just, there was people everywhere and there was like emergency news flashes coming up on all the, all the TV screens being like outbreak, like epicenter. And then wow. the kneecap lads did their gig on the, one of the days. And then it was like the day after that, then we came to meet you. And then, it was a couple of days after that then we were going back and then a couple of days after that again then you came back mad yeah oh yeah it's, it's all very bonkers looking back at it now isn't it like yeah so what have you been getting up to since then loads of stuff um basically i've been just indulging in every single thing that i couldn't do for the last seven years because of lancum <laughs> um yeah, so like the moment I got home, I, I went back to where I live, which is like up in the attic of my man and dad's house in uh, North Dublin. And uh, yeah, just, you know, got over the jet lag after a few days and just started like, yeah, I don't know, I just got like a kind of creative surge, I suppose. I, I was like, I made my mind up that, uh, so started getting the, the COVID payment and I was like, yeah, this is amazing, like, you know. Like, totally one of those scumbags that Leo Radker was going on about, you know, these people getting more money on the COVID payment than they are in the real jobs is terrible. And I was like, fuck yeah, give it all to me. And uh, so I splashed out on this kind of new, um, like, musical interface and a new mic and, you know, some gear just for... Because, you know, I'd been doing the fire drawn air for five or six months already at that stage. And I was like, yeah, I think I want to, you know, get a bit of gear and kind of bring it up. Uh, you know, bring it up a notch or two quality wise. Um, so I got all that and then I got Pro Tools and stuff and I was just kind of messing around with it and I kind of got the idea to do the Wild Rover episodes. And so I kind of started working on those straight away after I got back. Um, and I was doing this thing, Songs from the Crack Pipe. Uh, it was, ba- yeah, basically I was at home. My sister had started working from home. She writes for Lonely Planet. And so she was working from home and anytime I was at home trying to play music or usually trying to sing, she'd be going, Ian, Ian, shut up. And, you know, I'd be singing in the shower or whatever and she was just freaking out. Like, And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have to find, you know, something else to do here. So, I, you know, I was going out for walks and trying to find places just go and sing. And then there was this concrete pipe in a building site out in the fields behind the, you know, where my mom lives. And um yeah, I was just like, oh, fuck, I'll just sit in here and, you know, I can just sing all day. And so I started doing that and just recording the videos and sticking them up online. And, you know, I was doing the, uh, we're still working on the radio show and the podcasts and stuff. And I just, yeah, just, I don't know. I've kind of felt, 
it was after a very short time just felt a really like just renewed sense of wellness and you know being like yeah this is what this is what I should be doing you know I was going out for swims in the sea because that's you know it's out by the coast there where they live so like you know cycle for 15 minutes or 10 minutes even and I'm out at the sea um, really nice beach there out in Port Marnock and so I was going out swimming I was walking a lot you know there's lots of really nice walks and I was just like felt like liberated from the kind of you know because for the last last good few years now stuff with Lancome has been so busy so 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 busy just constantly on tour constantly exhausted you know drinking too much because you're off playing gigs the whole time and just not feeling healthy at all missing out on so much sleep and I know life just became so calm and peaceful and easy I had all the all the time in the world to be working on creative projects that I just didn't have any time for with the band, you know, because you think, oh yeah, being in a band, you're living this like creative, the art life as David Lynch calls it. But it's not, it's it's like, yeah, you, you spend some time maybe in the whole cycle of album, tour, recording, you know, there is a some part of that where you're being creative and you're actually, you know, in the creative flow and you're making stuff. And most of the time you're just like, playing stuff that you've come up with years ago because that's you know you have to play that at gigs and so you're not really like exercising those faculties so um yeah i mean it it only took a week or two getting back from the states for me to get into this swing but i was just like i was like this is the best thing that's ever happened like you know and i mean it's it's kind of hard to talk about and i know like there's so many people have had such bad experiences and it feels terrible that you know in a way, I do. I do. I'm, not, I'm just. I have to be careful. You know, you have to be careful who you say that to. You know, like I was saying on the podcast the other day. But like in terms of all that stuff, I'm just like 2020 was just my best year. You know, because all the stuff and all the time I found to do these things and just just spending time by myself, which is one of my favorite things to do. And um, it's just a whole new, whole new lease of life. You know, that I hadn't experienced in such a long time. Did you feel like you were kind of reconnecting with your roots in terms of like spending more time with folk songs? And you know, like through the podcast, it seems like you're probably doing a lot of research for the podcast and discovering new songs and stuff like that there as well. It seems to be something that you're really passionate about. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, it's something that I had. Yeah, I've I've been into for a long time. Like the history of um, traditional songs, you know, and the social history surrounding that whole area folklore you know the whole lot of it and um, before you know before Lancome really got too busy I was I was lecturing out in UCD you know I'd done a degree in folklore and early Irish out there so it's yeah there's just all this stuff this stuff that really like excites me and that really I'm, and I'm passionate about that I just kind of found that I just had no time for you know when the band was going full tip and um, so yeah it's just been been really amazing to kind of connect back into that and rediscover the things that you know really make me happy and like delving into the the songs and just following these musical trails and like you know spending spending a few hours a day just researching songs that i'm interested in and finding little strange little parallels and connections to other songs and other other musical genres and stuff like this is like to me this is just a life you know i can't believe i have all this time to do this and not only that but there's actually people out there who want to listen to me just ramble on about just obscure shit like you know 
<laughs> Where did you get that interest from in the first place, do you reckon? Um, oh, I, I don't know. Like, you know, it's, I suppose when I started, when I was a, when I was a teenager, I started getting into, um, you know, like traditional songs, you know, more like the well-known stuff like Christy Moore and Planksty and the Dubliners. But I, I think as time went on, I kind of, um, yeah, I, I suppose I just became more and more drawn towards the kind of background to them. You know, I'd be always looking up the albums and, you know, reading, oh, we got this song from such and such person. You know, I was, I was always interested in the kind of album notes and stuff that people would have. And from there, I suppose, I just took it a step further and it probably would have been, you know, back when I was doing my degree out in UCD, you know, uh, the degree in folklore that I started to realize, no, this is a whole actual like academic um, subject, you know, people looking into traditional songs and studying all all different aspects of them. Um, and that's something that really kind of like fired up my passion. And then I suppose it just became like matter of course that whenever I was learning a new song, whether for my own singing or for doing with the band, I I just I would always just try to find out as much as I could about that song. You know, I'd look up all the different versions I could find. I'd look up like internet discussions about the backgrounds and the histories of the song. I'd look up JSTOR for like academic articles that were written in journals about the songs over the years, you know, and just try to just for my own understanding of the song and what it was all about, you know, and what was going on. Because, I mean, when you listen, sometimes you listen to traditional songs, you get your own ideas and your own imagery about it. And that's just as valid as anything else. But I always kind of just felt the urge to maybe go a bit further and really like, you know, I wanted to have an understanding of what it was I was singing about, you know, what did this term mean? Okay, this term means something to us now, but what did it mean 200 years ago? You know, what did this represent a hundred years ago when people started singing at first, you know? All, all those like kind of things. Bad year for me has kind of been a link, like the link between the superficial sound of a song and the, the dark, like underbelly of like folk music. Like you don't really, <laughs> when you're just listening to an album, like you don't get that, like uh, unless you're going off to do all the research, like the way yeah, you're yeah. doing it. So that's kind of yeah. been like a really nice link. Like out there, actually, one of the things I was just listening to it there the other week and I was thinking, like, I never realized how similar English folk music was to Irish folk music. Oh, yeah, in, yeah. In a lot of ways, like, you know, whereas before yeah. I was like, like, probably uh, similar to what you were saying there, like when I was in my early teens or whatever, I started listening to Christy Moore and the Dubliners and the Wolf Tones and like, that's what folk music represented yeah. for me at that time or whatever. But then when you hear like the old recordings of broadsheet ballads that are recorded in some like tavern somewhere in England then you start yeah. to kind of like feel the, the bond with with people over there whereas in Ireland like, like historically I suppose it's been a separation that's been emphasized with England yeah yeah I think so and that's that's uh, yeah also that was something really instructive for me to find out about and really interesting to to look into it as well because I mean you can't you can't deny it when you start looking into it, you're going okay well you know there's people singing pretty much the same songs you know they made their way across the irish sea in both directions for a long long time you know um there's such cross-pollination going on and i mean it makes sense um and yeah then you start to read i mean there's some stuff that i, I if i had to come across this 
statement like 15 years ago would have made me really angry but like you know you hear scholars talking about as far as English language singing goes because you know there obviously is there a very separate like Irish language singing tradition that has a completely different evolution and a completely different history but as far as English language singing goes that um you know Ireland Scotland and England can be counted as the same thing because there's so much cross-pollination going on between them and yeah, that that doesn't have anything to say about whatever political situations there might be, but just in terms of English language song. And you're going, well, yeah, actually, when you look into it, it makes sense. Sounds like a very controversial thing to say, you know, in some ways. But um, yeah, and I think it's just it's it's always a nice thing to see when you just you know you see people uh, just you know the common humanity in people, and you're going, well, you know, people aren't that different wherever you go in the world, you know. Yeah, that's the other thing is through through the songs, like it kind of is like a time capsule and brings you back to the time when that song was first invented or uh, written down or whatever. And then when I'm sitting there listening to, like especially like the Wild Rover series where there's versions of it being plucked out from all, all over the place, like, and you're sitting thinking the same kind of stuff that was going on in like Ireland was happening in England where like there was someone going in drinking all their money away and like yeah, and yeah. having these interactions with these bannon teas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um and I think it's yeah, that's another thing that's just so like fascinating for me that you can look at somebody's like situation two hundred, two hundred and fifty years ago, three hundred years ago, and you're like, it's just exactly the same as what goes on now, you know, like you're separated like in space and time. From these people, like, yeah, it could be someone in England, like, 200 years ago, singing about this thing, and you're like, yeah, but, uh, and that's just the thing, it speaks to people's just common humanity, and are just, are, like, it just, it's something that's just very innate and human about all of us, you know? Do you think that's something, like, even just based on, like, the, the feedback and stuff, and the people who've been getting in contact with you about the podcast, what do you think is it that makes Fadron Year so, like, that makes people so attached to it because it has kind of like really like taken off in a way like hasn't it like like if there's a proper like podcast following there of like far drawn year yeah. hardcore fans now like it seems like it yeah it seems like it and um, i'm kind of yeah kind of blown away by it but yeah that thing if you stick something up on the internet and you know there's oh yeah like a hundred people like to sing it and what what are a hundred fucking people doing liking this thing that i'm putting out and that you know i, I kind of thought for a long time i'm just like yeah you know who would into this like you know yeah people are into songs but they're not going to listen to like you know 50 versions of one song and you know hours of rambling about why the different versions are different and you know like what happened to them over the course of a few hundred years and um, but yeah it seems like there are people out there definitely with um, a, a very big interest in it and i don't know maybe i think there is definitely um what i'm coming to realize over like definitely in just in today's like society and even amongst the people that we know there's a real like hunger and a need and a, a kind of um an attraction i think that people have towards understanding this kind of stuff more deeply you know whether it's like irish folklore irish language traditional music and song i think there's a very there's a very strong pull that all those kind of um those subjects and those parts of culture have now that really wasn't there like 20 years ago when I started to or 25 years ago when I started to listen to this kind of thing you know it really wasn't there in the same way and I think the that the 
level of interest now that younger generations have towards like these parts of or these aspects of Irish culture it's it's, it's amazing and really inspiring you know um, I think it's it kind of hints toward a, a very different maybe um, attitude that people have towards their own culture I just started reading uh, Monken McGann's 32 Words for Fear oh, oh it's so good yeah and like that must have been one of the best selling books for Christmas altogether. Yeah. Like like I, I bought got one for one of my brothers for Christmas as a present and it was the last copy that they had in the shop when I bought yeah. it in Waterstones. And I feel like maybe what you're kind of talking about there is um applies to those kind of books where it's like delving into the Irish language and the richness of it. And I, I kind of get the sense that from speaking to people who have read it and even from listening to Mankin talking about it, it that it, we all like on some sort of primal level need a se- to feel a sense of belonging, and I think that that connection to folklore and songs that are like time capsules that bring you back to years gone by or um, give you an insight into the richness of the Irish language is kind of it kind of does that in a way. Yeah, I think so, and I I think. Like I'll be thinking about this a bit, and I think the kind of where we're living now and uh, the age that we're living in, and the kind of level of technological like progress we're at and everything else, I think we're living in a kind of a time that has never occurred before, whereby we literally have no like mythologies to sustain us. You know, like basically any time in the past in human society, there's always been stories and narratives that people had that explained our position in the cosmos and explained why we're here explained life explained death explained everything but if you look at like modern 21st century capitalist western society we've got absolutely nothing like it's a completely nihilistic like worldview it's like yeah we're literally we're just like colonies of bacteria on this rock spinning through the endless nothingness forever and there's no reason it's just pure blind mechanical chance that we're here at all and like that's such an empty like empty worldview you know compared to the richness of what we had in the past now i'm not saying that i yeah i mean it, it also makes sense and um you know i wouldn't really be religious in that kind of way but um i do think that there is something missing you know from our lives i think where we've always had these things to help us along we've kind of like we've thrown all away and in ireland rightly so because you know our our kind of one connection to that source for a long time was the catholic church and now we've quite rightly fucked it out but you kind of worry about in some ways like well what takes that place you know in our lives what what goes where that used to be like there's nothing there people what do people do like they go shopping when they feel bad buy shit they don't need you know it's like where where are the where are the stories and where where are the narratives and where do we get our meaning from so i think there's a real a real hunger and a real need for stuff like on this level you know on a much deeper level like in some ways it feels like we've overexposed ourselves or become overexposed to technology and information so that there's kind of less wonderment. Absolutely. 
something like that, which yeah. actually kind of leads on really nicely to the next thing I was going to ask you about, about the fighting fantasy game books that you've been, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that you've been like kind of involved in since you were really young. So, but like, what's the story there? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think, I think that that kind of operates in a very similar kind of place. Um, so yeah, the first time I came across these game books, I was about like, I think I was like eight years old seven or eight and my mate Christo Reeves in school he like gave me the end of one of them and um, was this book called Trial of Champions and I was like oh what's this and kind of took it off and so what basically it's like um it's a game book so ba- you would take the kind of you read the story and it's like oh you are a brave warrior and you live in this like magical land and basically you have a choice in the game book so it would say okay you know you are in this place and say like you're in a room there's a door over in the west wall there is like a creature sitting there. What do you want to do? Do you want to talk to the creature? Do you want to go through the door? Do you want to attack the creature? And it gives you all these choices. Um, so you have, yeah, you have the ability while you're reading the book or playing the game to decide how the story will go. But not only that, but there's also an element of uh, randomness and chance. And that kind of takes the form of uh in book mechanic where you you have two six-sided dice that you'll roll for various things so sometimes you'll be called on to test your skill in a certain situation so basically you have three attributes there's like skill stamina and luck and say for example you have like your skill might be like 10 so you would be like oh i want to jump over this chasm um with my rope tied to like a rafter and be like oh i'll test your skill so you have to try to roll underneath your skill to make it or not or at some stages you test your luck or there's also like uh, mechanics for fighting with the creatures where you would roll the dice and add them to your skill score then you roll two for the creature and add it to its skill score and whoever gets the most wounds the other one and you take away two points of damage so all these different mechanics going on it's basically like a very light version of dungeons and dragons or something like that um so it's kind of like the, the book is the book and the dice and the instructions and the illustrations in the book are helping to facilitate this world inside your head. Where oh, you're absolutely. Getting into fights and jumping over stuff and then making different choices as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. And I, t- I was thinking about this a while ago, and I think a lot of it has to do, like some, I'm kind of really into the ideas of Joseph Campbell and the whole story about like the hero's journey and the monomyth and all that kind of stuff. And if you look at all the different stages of the hero's journey, it's like so much of it comes up in, in these books, you know, it's like, even you read the back of the book and it says all the time, like you are the hero, like in every single one part story, part game, this is a book in which you become the hero. So like the hero's journey is such a big part of it. And I think like looking back on it now, I realize that it's a kind of, it was a way definitely for me because like I was never really into like going to mass or anything like that. Like, you know, I was brought up a Catholic, made me communion and confirmation and all that, but like didn't really mean anything to me. And it didn't, you know, it didn't really speak to my kind of like, you know, mythological side or, you know, the subconscious kind of side of me. But then I realized that by participating in these kind of game books, you're dealing with all this, like all these archetypes and mythological, um, adventures like you know the whole story it's like that interpretation of like basically like the greek myths and the whole underworld kind of sagas it's all about like delving into your subconscious and the monsters represent you know different fears or like traumas you might have so 
I think, yeah, but you're like, you know, a lot of these books take place in dungeons and you're crawling through dungeons, battling monsters. It's like a way of interacting with that whole like mythological kind of like dream realm, you know? And I think that's kind of what I was doing. And that's, that's one reason why I was so drawn into them at that stage of my life. Before we recorded this episode here and I, like we were, we were going to do this in person up in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, like, that's a real shame. All the kind of shit hit the fan or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we didn't get through it. But um, you sent me, I've seen some of the pictures of your collection of books that you have. Yeah, <laughs> holy moly! Like, did you just did you start yeah. collecting them from when you were about eight or nine? Yeah, yeah. So the first one I got was a book called Caverns of the Snow Witch, and I still have the, that copy of that. I think, um, yeah, maybe you saw the picture of the one, and I said like, oh yeah, it was here. Blah, 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 1990, you know, like, so it was like, uh, yeah, like nine years old. And I still, I still have these. So at that time, I maybe had about like after a few years, you know, I was always asking my ma to buy them for me and she'd be like, oh, save up your pocket money and, you know, you can get one or whatever. So I, I kind of ended up having about maybe 13 or 14 of them. And then a few years ago, uh, so my son is 13 now. When he was about eight or nine himself, I remember going back to my ma's and finding these books. And I was like, oh, Lou, check it out. We have to get into these. And he was like, oh, cool. Yeah. So we used to read them together. And then I, I, I really enjoyed playing them with him. You know, I'd read out the passages and give him the choices to make and stuff, you know. And so, you know, it was really just a good, good bit of crack we had together. And um, but then I started realizing I was like, oh, there's you know, so many books missing from the collection. So when the original run of fight and fantasy books so like fight and fantasy is the main kind of uh, series that i was into there was other ones like uh, lone wolf and other kind of ones but fight and fantasy for me were the ones and um, so I, I was like yeah i'm gonna try and like finish you know complete the collection you know because there's 59 of these books and and there's still more getting made now i think one came out a few months ago by uh rihanna pratchett wrote i think she's terry pratchett's daughter but anyway um 59 in the original run of the books so I started kind of, um, yeah, looking for them secondhand and, you know, picking up a few on eBay. And so I have, I have most of the original 59. I'm still missing three of them. Um, but there are three really expensive ones. So I don't, I'm not really in any rush. I'm still kind of like hoping for the day that I'm just going to walk into a secondhand shop and they're going to be there waiting for me. But <laughs> Are they like they numbered or something like that? They... Yeah. Yeah. So you'll see here, like house of hell is number 10. Um, and they're really recognizable as well because they've got these green spines on them. So you like, I, my eyes are trained. Like if I walk into a charity shop and there's one on the shelf, I'm just like, bam, I see it straight away. It's just like, yeah, it pops out in my vision. And I just, I just buy, whenever I find them, even if they're ones that I have already, I'll just buy them and just, you know, give them people for presents or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm always on the lookout. Has the, has the kind of scene changed with the way the technology has changed? Because they was the first one was written like in the was it like in the seventies or something that they came out first? I think the first one, the Warlock of Fartop Mountain, it might be eighty one, um, eighty two. Sorry, eighty two. And yeah, I mean things have obviously changed so much. Um, so at that time, I mean when I was into these first, I, I had like an old Commodore sixty four, and there used to be like text adventures on the computer which was basically like a computer game version of these but it's just like text on a screen kind of describing the stuff and you type in what you want to do um so already at that stage you know the kind of technology of these things was kind of becoming more and more advanced and then obviously like into the 90s and 2000s just 
computer game technology has just exploded. So it's kind of hard, hard to see that, you know, actual like real print books like these could ever have a- any kind of like cultural kind of standing like they had in the eighties, you know, because they were absolutely huge in the eighties. They really cut off so much like they were. And that's why you still like, you see the earliest books, like books like this, like city of thieves, the, the you know, the ones that are in like maybe the first, like one to, I don't know, 20 or 30, you still see them in charity shops all over the place because the print runs were just massive, you know. But as the books kind of go up in number, I think they were falling in popularity. And so when you get up to like the 40s and 50s, they were only being printed maybe like a few thousand of them. So they they get much rarer, you know. So it's ironically the earlier ones that aren't as valuable and that are easier to find and the later numbers you don't see around as much. Like it sounds like kind of the way that like vinyl is after making a comeback and stuff like that mm. for whatever reason that like yeah, really yeah. beautiful just about having a book and it just being your imagination just kind of the, that the work is happening on the inside as opposed to happening like on the yeah. screen or whatever. I think so. And I think that's just another aspect. It's almost like it's, it's a very kind of natural and kind of gut reaction to the kind of emptiness of modern society and of people living their lives kind of more and more digitally and virtually, you know, on the internet. It's like, I think, you know, people are, there's just like a need there for, I don't know, for a life that's just more tactile and things you can feel and touch and that just seemed to have more meaning, you know, because everything, everything you see on the screen, is like you get sucked into it, but then you, you turn it off and it's just gone. You know, it's not, it's like, it's not there anymore, but like just having these actual things in real life, you can pick up and hold and you can smell them and, you know, they have a personality all by themselves. It's like, it's just a, it's real life, you know, it's different, yeah. <laughs> such a different thing. Yeah. It's like and the also, difference between, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say to me, it's like the difference between sitting in a room with somebody who's like singing or playing music and listening to it on a recording, you know, it's like a completely different thing. One, it's one is only a very, very like pale approximation of the other one, you know. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite one? Um, I do actually. Yeah. My absolute favorite one. I have a, I have a copy of it here. It's called uh, Creature of Havoc. Now this is the like modern reprint. I have like a very old fallen apart copy that was mine with different artwork on it but that was number 24 in the series and i remember my ma bought that for me in a bookshop when i was maybe like the same age nine or ten when i was getting most of them but it's the absolutely like the most complex one of all so there was two writers that were involved in this series with steve jackson and ian livingston and steve jackson was by far far like the more cerebral of the two and his books were really sneaky and full of like puzzles and traps and just way more complicated so this book it took me years and years to finish it and like maybe three or four years and i used to go back every few months and play it again and again and again and so yeah i was showing you the picture earlier there's so when you start off the um the game you don't know who you are or what you're doing. You're basically like in a tunnel. You don't know who you are, how you got there. Your like your actions aren't your own. There's like a there's a little dwarf beside you, and if you choose to help him or talk to him, you end up just strangling him anyway, and you're totally not in control <laughs> of your actions. And sometimes you, you go to make a choice, and it says, "Oh, I'll roll a dice." And if you roll like a one to three, you just do the opposite thing anyway. You know, you're totally not in control of your actions. You can't. 
you can't understand what anybody is saying. And it's this language in the book that looks really crazy. Um, and all the, all the creatures in the book are talking to you in this language that makes no sense. And only when you get like, you know, you progress in the game, you find like a ring or something and the, or you find a scroll and the scroll tells you how to translate the language. And then you learn and then you can go back and apply the code to all the language you've seen and you can actually figure out what it means. Um, but there was one really, really, really genius part in the book and it took me years to figure this out. Um, and it's all to do with because of the creature that you are and you have such a little understanding of the world around you, it requires a really great like leap of thinking outside the box to break out of this dungeon and find like the secret door on the way out and the way it was done in the book was genius and some people think it was a mistake that was printed in the original book but i don't think it's a mistake at all i think it was really clever so basically what happens is you get this magic ring and whenever you're in a room with a secret door the ring is meant to glow and let you know that the secret door is there and the mechanic in the book which lets you know about this it's something like it says if you walk into a room and the paragraph starts off with the phrase you find yourself in a room then add 50 onto the paragraph number to find like the secret door. But there's no room that there's no paragraph that starts off with that phrase. There's a room that starts off with a phrase that's very similar. And if you add the 50 to that, then it works. But it's like almost a way of like making you think outside the box as the monster to, you know, to gain this like leap in consciousness Mm. And find your way out of the dungeon and it's fucking genius and it took me it literally took me like three or four years to figure that out and i remember the day i i got it and i was like oh my god i couldn't believe it like, were and, you uh, doing this was it was some of your friends doing this as well or was this just you kind of on a solo solo journey um at this stage it was, it was just me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm just, definitely I'm just, just me. Imagine, like when you're reading it do you like when you were reading these like when you were a kid were you like acting out the stuff or are you just sitting there like in a chair reading it or are you like getting into it like physically as well I, I wasn't getting into it physically now there was some there was some parallels to the books in real life in that um, behind my house out in Baldoyle there was like an old race course and in the race course it was like basically the, they had the ruins of the stands where people used to sit and watch the races but it was just mountains of rubble but un- there was these underground tunnels underneath them where you'd go down and it was just like dark tunnels with like passages that went off to like to the left and the right and i used to go under there and that to me was like the real life equivalent of these books but that's like as close as i got like i wasn't into like larping or anything like that but it was basically yeah it was just me at home being a total nerd and (laughs) reading these books and rolling dice (laughs) do you fancy reading a piece out of one of your favorite ones there um yeah, maybe I'll start off with this one, Creature of Havoc. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just like I'll just pick up a random page, maybe will I? Yeah. Um, okay. So you indicate to him. This is passage two hundred and ninety-seven. You indicate to him that your wounds hurt and that you have a sore head. He invites you to lie down on his bed. The bed is much too small for you, but you manage to keep your balance and lie down while he examines you. The physician rises jerkily from the desk and totters quickly over to the bed. His bony fingers probe the areas around your wounds and rub the side of your head. Hmm. As I thought, he says, making an uncomfortable rasping sound as he scratches his head. Your body has a mild poison circulating within it. I have an antidote. 
Quimblebone clatters across to a drawer and takes out a small flask. Drink this, he orders. You hesitate, but he is insistent and becomes angry at your refusals. Will you drink the potion as he demands, or will you refuse and attack the creature? What do you want to do? Um, I'll drink the potion. Okay, 228. You lie back and relax while the physician pours the potion into your mouth. You become drowsy and eventually drift off into a peaceful sleep. Almost immediately, you start to have a disturbing dream in which you are lying down and being attacked by knives wielded by a skeletal hand. You struggle to escape, but your movements are slow and ineffective. Again and again, the knives are driven into your chest and abdomen. The shock makes you wake up immediately. You are unable to move at all. All you can do is watch as a specimen jar is held over your chest and a bony hand drops an organ into it. The organ is beating and the tub-tub-tub-tub noise fills your ears. Your last perception of life is watching your own heart slowly stop beating. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I should not have drank that potion. <laughs> uh, in fairness, it was a 50-50. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, the, the decisions are full of not only can you die in a battle, but there's also like instant death passages like that where you make the wrong choice and you can. So basically what I used to do when I was playing when I was younger was I'd often like keep a finger in the page and go to the one, and if it was something bad, I'd just turn back, you know, yeah. where my finger I'd bookmark. And then, but sometimes you'd have to kind of go down the trail of a few different choices, and like you'd have like three fingers in the book, like you know, holding bookmarks like that. But basically, it's only now when I, if I go back and play one now, I do it, you know, buy the book and follow all the rules properly, and it's actually much more fun. I found following the actual rules. Keeping the finger in the book is kind of like having a cheat sheet, a cheat for the PlayStation or whatever when you die. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not dead anymore. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Infinite <But> lives. <laughs> see, when you were reading that though, I was just like, it's, it makes you feel like, kind of like emotionally, like when I was sitting there thinking about having a dream where I was getting stabbed in the heart, <laughs> like, it makes you, like you can feel it on the, not, you can feel the emotions like working inside you like, yeah, and it, it's it's so evocative, you know. And it's I think the the artwork in the books, it's just for me, it's really distinctive, like just black and white artwork. But especially when I look back at it now, it's got such a nostalgic value, you know. I can remember the first time playing it at home when I was a kid, and you know, you have uh, what they call an adventure sheet, which is like basically where you keep a note of um, how much stamina you have left. So, like you know, I'll show you here your skill, stamina, and your luck. So your stamina would be, you know, at the start of the game, you roll two dice and add that to 12, and that's your stamina. So you might have, like, you know, 18, 19 stamina. If you get wounded, you lose two or three, and then if it gets to zero, you're dead. Um, you know, and you'd keep, like, items carried or information. So it's it just brings it all to life so much, you know? Yeah. Um, and, like, the, you know, the, the writing can be quite evocative as well. So it's it's really just easy just to lose yourself in it, you know, and just become... You know, you're just lost in this totally magical world. Here, do another one there. Okay. Um, maybe I'll try another one. This is this one is called City of Thieves. And this is a really like really good um, adventure in a in a like a manky city. Um. Okay, so when you hear the guards coming down the stairs, you lie on the floor and start to groan. They unlock the cell door and enter. If you wish to continue with your feigned illness and tell them that you think you've got the plague, turn to 306. If you wish to fight them unarmed, turn to 157. Fight them unarmed. Fight them unarmed. Okay, 157. 
You leap up and punch the first guard. He staggers back and draws his sword. You fight them one at a time in the small cell. And then it gives you the values for the two guards. So they have a skill and a stamina. And so basically this is where is where you'd have a battle with them rolling the dice and all the rest of it. And then it says, During each attack round, you must deduct three from your attack strength because you are fighting barehanded. If you manage to defeat the guards, you leave the cell and climb the stairs, picking up your sword off the table. So turn to 54. So we're after defeating the guards. You search the gatehouse and find two gold pieces and a merchant's pass permitting the holder to trade in Port Blacksand. Taking your findings with you, you creep outside. The guard at the main gate does not see you walk and does not see you and you walk into the city. Turn to 74. Through the main gates, you see that the rubbish-filled streets of the port are narrow and cobbled. Old and decrepit buildings line them closely with their upper stories overhanging menacingly. You may go west down Key Street, head north along Market Street, or go east down Clock Street. Go north. Okay, so head north along Market Street. Turn to 116. Walking north along the street, you see the entrance to a small herbalist's shop on your left. Looking through the window, you can see a wooden counter with a pair of scales upon it and many sacks of different herbs crowding the floor. There is a small archway leading out of the back of the shop to another room. There is an open sign on the door, but the shop is empty. If you wish to enter the shop, turn to 250. If you would rather continue walking north up Market Street, turn to 93. I will go into the shop, sir. I'm going to see what they have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, like there's an illustration for this one. Ooh, he looks menacing. He does. He looks nasty. Um, a small bell rings as the door opens and a creature wearing a brown apron over his clothing hurries through the archway from the back room into the shop to stand behind the counter. He appears human-like but has very ugly facial features and pointed teeth. You realise he is half man, half orc. A sharp hand axe hangs from his belt to remind you that Port Black Sand is unlikely to be a friendly place in which to do business. Will you inquire about the herbs? Ask if the man-orc knows of Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is a wizard who lives in the city that you're looking for. Or attack the man-orc. It seems a bit attacking him <laughs> as soon as he went to a shop because he don't like the look of him. <laughs> That's brutal. No, we're going to try and find Nicodemus. Okay. Um, ask if the man-orc knows of Nicodemus. Turn to 342. It's funny because some of the books, you realize, like the first one, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, you realize after you've played it, you're like, I just, I just walked into somebody else's like um home and like basically i like, killed them and then stole their money and somehow i'm the hero of the whole thing you know? <laughs> i was just sitting there thinking like this this just goes on like i mean it's it's kind of addictive isn't it like you're just like it really is yeah well, well just do it just do it. yeah well, do it. we could be here all day you know and um, the man orc the man orc tells you that for one gold piece he will tell you all he knows if you want to pay for his information Fuck turn that to one gold piece. No if way. you would rather leave the shop and continue, we walk north, turn to 93. I keep up my one gold piece. No, no way. Okay. <laughs> too much. Hey, fuck off, man. <laughs> Go to 93 instead. <laughs> continue north. Um, uh, on the right-hand side of the street, you see a tavern called the Spotted Dog. If you want to enter the tavern, turn to 62. If you would rather continue north, turn to 296. But in the tavern, definitely. Okay, into the tavern. Yeah, it's a better way to spend your gold piece. Oh, Looked at another illustration. What's happening there? Oh, Jesus, they're fucking 
miserable looking creatures in there as well, aren't they? <laughs> I know, yeah. Load of no cracks. Um, okay, so we'll do this quickly. The old wooden doors open into a dingy, smoke-filled room. There are eight round tables in the centre of the room with some of the most mean and shifty-looking rogues you have ever seen sitting at them. At the back of the tavern is a long wooden bar covered with bottles and mugs. Behind the bar stands the innkeeper wearing a grubby apron. He is quite old, bald, and has an ugly black scar running down his right cheek. Not all the customers are human. Will you? There's a load of choices here now. Will you walk to the bar and talk to the innkeeper? Sit down at a table with three dwarfs who are playing a dice game. Sit down at a table with two goblins who are arguing. Sit down with three men who are sticking daggers quickly between their fingers on the table. <laughs> or leave the tavern and walk north. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might sit down with the... Who was playing the dice game? Was that the dwarfs, was it? Um, the dwarfs are playing a dice let's game. Say, yeah. They're probably a bit of crack. There. Yeah, a bit safer than the dagger, lads. Yeah. Um, okay, one seven three. The three old bearded dwarfs are so involved with their game that they pay you no attention as you sit down at their table. Finally, one turns to you and asks if you would like to join their game. If you wish to gamble, some of your gold pieces turn to two oh six. If you would rather leave the smoky tavern and walk north, turn to two nine six. I'm keeping a hold of my gold piece. Okay. Yeah. Fucking dwarfs. Okay. Leave the tavern and turn north. 296. Um, oh no. So now, okay. Walking towards you down the street are two men wearing black robes which cover them completely except for their eyes. On seeing you, they nod at each other and draw their swords. They are thieves hoping to rob you of your possessions and you must defend yourself. Fight them one at a time and a sk- thief skill seven, stamina seven. The other one is skill eight, stamina six. Another battle there. So yeah, it just goes on and on. And um, <laughs> so I, I sent you the map there that was made for the Warlock of Firetop Mountain. And one of the things that was encouraged in these games was to draw your own map because there's so many choices and stuff, you know, to keep a keep a uh, handle on where you are in the game and not get lost and stuff. So that was another fun part of it. Yeah, class. Actually, the choices, the out of context choices list. <laughs> I, I think we should talk about that. I actually want yeah. to, I'm actually going to bring it up here. So when we were chatting earlier on before we started recording, where is it there night? Um, you sent me the list of choices. Where the hell did they go? Oh, I have me. So yeah, this was a. Uh, we have to give credit to Vicky for this idea. Um, she was saying it was almost like a, you know, Brian Eno's oblique strategies. Yeah. The cards, because I've seen them in, you know, sometimes when you go to record in a studio, they have these cards for when you're stuck, you know, you pick up a card and it will just give you some enigmatic phrase. But uh, yeah, I never even thought about this, that some of the choices in the games could be just like completely taken out of context and used in life, you know, whenever you're stuck or you're not sure what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to just pull a few of them out. So whenever you're not sure what to do in life, search your memory for another means of attack. Yeah. That's good advice. Absolutely. There's <laughs> try to grab the keys and go for the nearest door. I should actually, I wish I had done that more often. Just that get one. out of there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always good to know when to do that. <laughs> yeah. Apologize, bow and leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish I had done that a lot more in life. Really? <laughs> Get down on all fours and try to creep into the room unnoticed. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, <laughs> stride over to the dwarf, give him a jab with your sword, and 
put on an evil laugh for the torturers. <laughs> well, like, I'm not sure when that would come in handy, but you yeah. know. There's another one here. It just says swim. Yeah, I like that one. Um, there's one walk across the room, stepping only on hands. That's what I think. I think my favorite one. I would. I, this could just come in handy and for all aspects of life. Throw cheese at it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite ones when I was reading them earlier was spring at the chieftain in the hope that his oh, servant yeah. will aid you. Yeah, because I was thinking about that. There's so so many like kind of uh, like philosophical sides to that, you know. Because you're going, is has a servant become so institutionalized that he's going to stick up for the, the chieftain, you know, when you go to attack him, or is he going to recognize his chance for liberation? You know, the whole thing of like the oppressed kind of internalizing their own oppression. I yeah. thought that was great. Just in that one phrase, there, there's so much going on. That one, when I read that earlier, I was thinking of um, the thing like that I had in my head whenever I was like a kid back in the day I was like if I get ever into a fight I was like and there's more than one person you just go for the person who's in charge yeah yeah first. yeah that was always uh, that was always my dad's advice he's like if, if there's ever a gang of lads just go for the biggest fella yeah you know and the rest and of them like, will just stop really since yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they see you, he's like if they see you battering him then they're not none of the rest of me but I'm not going to batter the biggest fella he's going to kill me and then they're all going to hop on me yeah. and um, here so what about what about the dungeon synth music that you've mentioned a few times on the podcast it seems actually seems like there's kind of a common theme here between your the main kind of projects that you're involved in like with Fire Drawn Year and like going back to like even the, some of the scenes from say the Wild Rover songs very similar to the picture that was in that book there of walking into the tavern yeah yeah there's um there's a, a few like bits of artwork that i've kind of used on you know when i'm putting stuff about the um the podcast online and i'm like these are just perfect like, there's just these wonky scenes in bars like with weird like gnomes and goblins playing fiddles and stuff like that and i was like just fits in so perfectly but um i suppose yeah i don't know i suppose now i'm just at a point in my life where I can, I know I found a way to like express myself using the middle of the Venn diagram with all the weird things that I'm into, you know, and that I've kind of been into over the years, but probably never like told anyone about because I'm like, no, that's not, no one really understands this thing. But now I'm just like, fuck it, I'm 40. I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. Yeah, I play these game books that were written for kids. And yeah, I'm into like, you know, weird traditional songs that no one knows about or whatever, you know, I just like, you know, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with it now. Um, but yeah, I suppose the dungeon synth is another another aspect of this. So this is like a, a genre of music that I first became aware of probably about like two or three years ago. Um, there's this Italian cassette label called Heimat der Catastrophe. And they just put out cassettes of this music, which to me, like when I heard it first, I was like, this sounds like music basically from a Commodore 64 game that was based on Dungeons and Dragons and that's their total vibe as well. It's very kind of retro and um, just basically people making music constrained by probably like, you know, trying to kind of use the technology that was used back in the eighties, but you know, with like Commodore 64, SID chips and stuff like that. But it's basically like eight bit and 16 bit music and um, very low fi uh, very simple, but just very, um, just that basically, I can't say any better than that music that would have been 
on a Commodore 64 D&D role-playing computer game. Um, and I just, I, I found it just really fascinating. And I've, you know, something I've kind of kept uh, kept my eye on over the last few years. But now in the last few months, I started kind of making my own um, dungeon synth music. I kind of, yeah, just figured out the different programs that I needed. So I wasn't sure how to make it before. I thought I might need to buy an old computer or something like that. But, you know, as with everything now, you can just buy kind of like you know virtual workarounds and just buy plugins and stuff like that so i've started kind of making making these tunes at home and just totally gotten sucked into it to the point where i'm like i should be playing the pipes and learning new songs but instead of making music goes like you know like it's it's completely ridiculous and and maybe it's a form of procrastination but whatever right We're going to stop the podcast for a few seconds to have a brief dungeon synth interlude. This is a wee section of a track that Ian has been working on himself that he sent us and I thought it would be nice to add it in so he's have an idea of what he's talking about and for a bit of added weirdness. talking about the venn diagram there like yeah yeah that transferred over to the the way that like the music that you guys are making like to your influence on the music is that you're making with like um no (laughs) i don't think i don't think the the others would have it at all but (laughs) um like the the pride of petra war yeah yeah that's that's pretty like sounds like pretty dungeon and dragony yeah actually that's that's a bit and to be honest no actually yeah that to be honest about that, when we did get it together, so it was me and Cosy that came up with that idea. We were in Liberty Hall at the time and we were kind of going in nine to five every day. This is like two years ago, over two years ago now, two and a bit years ago, Jesus, two and a half nearly. And um, when me and Cosy came up with that idea, we were like, oh, we kind of had it in our head. We were like, it's like fucking a lot of orcs going on a war march, you know, in Lord of the Rings. And we're like, yeah, that's the vibe we'll go for. And then it was like deadly. We we're just like, really raw really brutal like no finesse about it like you know kind of slightly off key and out of tune and it's like but yeah it's a lot of fucking orcs marching off to war that they know they're gonna go and eat loads of hobbits it's gonna be amazing and that we just had that in our heads the whole time so no that is that is very true i didn't even think about that like if you open yourself up to that track it's terrifying yeah yeah um that's and then yeah all the stuff we did we did with it in the studio as well was just basically like all stemming from this idea of being like an orcish war march so uh yeah that was the buzz so yeah maybe maybe these things are coming into in, into lancome in a way i didn't Osmo- even think about osmosis. that uh, yeah osmosis but you can't really help it you know when when you start to get into things they just start to kind of bleed out beyond the edges and seep into other aspects of your life you know what are you doing at the minute with lancome um so we are here in this tower um Basically, we, we were yeah we're minding this place for the owner, and we've got all our gear. I don't know if you saw the, all the gear on the floor there earlier on, but the whole the whole room here is just full of our stuff. And we're kind of yeah we're just coming in here every day from the morning until the evening, and we're coming up with new ideas and putting stuff together. And just yeah, just with our kind of 
eyes on recording a new album some stage this year like what has the what has the impact has the pandemic had had on you like as a a band um it's interesting because we've i mean at the start i think like everybody else we were like oh deadly you know we're going to totally use this time to come up with so much new stuff we're going to record loads of albums and 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 then like we didn't do anything for months and months you know we did a i think we did like two gigs we did a other voices online thing in may maybe or june or something in kilkenny in the castle and then we did the abbey um live stream in august and that was it um so cormac was back in sligo for most of it and i suppose we were all just started we, yeah i mean like i said i had my own projects going on rady was doing her solo thing Dara and cormac were doing their own thing so you know i think it was a chance for us to kind of um just explore other areas that we hadn't time for but um yeah now we've been back here now for the last week and loads of new stuff coming together and i think yeah we all have lots of ideas and there it's just coming together really quickly and it's really nice to be working on it again you know just from speaking to loads of different people about what what they've been doing since the first lockdown in march it seems like there's a kind of a fairly uh, common pattern where like it happened to me as well for sure where i was like at the start, I was like, okay, going to be really productive. Da, 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 da. And yeah. then, the, but then the actual realization that I've taken a, been, taken a slower pace was needed for a while. Yeah. And eventually then you come back around to being able to get into like yeah. the kind of creative zone again. Yeah. And um, you know, what I was going to ask you was, you know, the way that all of, all of the gigs got canceled and stuff like that. And like pretty much every artist in the country has lost out from that point of view but mm. it seems to be like somewhat of a golden era for the kind of like or the kind of like call to arms for the followers of bands and stuff to get behind um, the yeah. bands like, because it's become ever more important for people to get behind bands support them with like crowdfunders or getting some merch off them or something like that because of the fact that artists have become like more land on that than before yeah yeah have you found that has kind of come oh absolutely yeah absolutely and i think i mean i I think that's one reason that a lot you're asking earlier about like people you know being the supporter of a fire drawn here i think that's one reason why you know it's um people who are into lancome are you know really really willing and open to support stuff like that and and also i noticed it with the kind of all the new merch that we made um before christmas we had a new run like new t-shirt designs and scarves and things like that but the amount of orders we got was like absolutely phenomenal it was like we literally we were down every day you know morning until night time packing parcels bringing down 200 at a time to the post office and it was just like like one day the computer in the post office actually broke halfway through it like we were just we we're going in there so much like 200 parcels and then, you know when you're doing the american ones they have to print out forms with the addresses on them so you'd be down there like be waiting an hour and a half just for them to sort out the whole thing you know paying like five or six hundred quid a go just for postage and um, it was just like i'd never dealt with it on that level before but it was just amazing that i like within you know like they put up the kind of the stuff on social media about having new merch and within like a day or two, just it was all like all sold out. It was just it was phenomenal to see that that level of support and, and goodwill amongst people, you know. One of the days during the summer there, I was walking down one of the streets in Cork and I was wearing the 
black Lancome t-shirt with the orange front on it. And oh yeah. There was a girl walking across the other side of the street where it was wearing the same t-shirt. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> we just give a little fist pump to each other. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's gas. Yeah, because we were having that conversation actually when we were we were like putting the packages together. We're like, it's gonna be weird now, you know, in town in the summertime, we're gonna be walking around and it's like there's so many of these t-shirts going out around Ireland and Ireland's fucking tiny, like you know, we're like we're definitely gonna be walking past people wearing these t-shirts on the streets and it's going to be weird you know it's going to be just like oh fuck <laughs> they wouldn't want to embarrass people I remember me and Dara were sitting in, in a bar and uh, we were just sitting having a point and this fella turned around and he's wearing like a fucking Lancome t-shirt the old man and he saw us and we kind of looked at him and we're just like alright and he was like oh jeez I'm so embarrassed and it was just an awkward situation because he had to acknowledge it then you know and then he was just sitting across from us for the next few hours and he was kind of just looking sheepish and I was like oh this is this is weird. Yeah, but, uh, that's the class thing about Ireland though as well. Like you can be following people who are doing class stuff and then you can see them walking down the street. Like that's like Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, do that very often, like in other places really. Yeah, I, I really like that. I was having this conversation with someone a few years ago about how Ireland is much different in the way that it treats like kind of famous people or well known people, you know? It's not like I think in other countries they're much more like liable to do the whole oh my god you're da, da, da. like people getting mobbed coming down the streets but like they were telling me i didn't like know this story but they're telling me some story about some like american stars that came over because they were like oh if, if they come to ireland and they go to walk in the park people are just like oh there's your man yeah whatever because it wasn't you know matt damon was in dublin or something yeah i think he was around these parts actually on the south side yeah Sort of heard he was living over here for a while, yeah. Something else that I, uh, I was meaning to ask you, I suppose, kind of connected to um, to Lancome and stuff like that, and the lockdown, the lockdowns and the pandemic is um, something that you've mentioned on the podcast a few times is about Spotify and oh and, yeah, and yeah, what's what's the like what's your kind of perspective on that now? Like I don't really have any like great nuanced take on it. I just think that Spot- Spotify is like fucking horrible it's it's terrible and i read really, i kind of get offended because now and again someone will send me a link and i'm like oh yeah check out this band i'm listening to and they'll send me a link on spotify and i'm like what what the fuck are you sending me spotify like i don't want i don't have that to do with it i'm like to be honest a few very few times i've looked it up as when if i'm looking for like an old recording um of some lt that came out in the 60s or something and it it's funny that sometimes it would be on spotify and or else but usually if it's something I'll, i mean i'll use I'd rather, like, speaking as somebody in a band, I'd rather that people just download their albums from Soulseek or something, even rather than going on Spotify. Because it's so thing. You kind of feel like you have to be on it these days because that's where people go. But I really think it's, it's such a shame. You know, I'd love to see a big shift to Bandcamp who seem to be just much more on the money with regards to what how they see themselves and, you know, how they operate and the whole, the whole system. The way it works, um, and just that uh, for Spotify, I think is like is shifting somewhat as well in the same way that people have become more conscious of supporting bands by buying their merch or buying albums online directly from them because of the yeah. whole pandemic and stuff like that. There, so like with the way that Spotify, I suppose, like the reason I asked you the question in the first place is because most people experience spotify as a user who's listening to it so you sign up for your monthly thing and then you can listen to all the music you want to but yeah you're kind of talking about it from a, an artist's perspective yeah so, and, and what and, what is that experience like on the other side of it 
Well, it's it's like the, it's it's the kind of same story here everywhere that it takes so many thousands of plays on Spotify to get like a few cents or whatever payment from them. It's very very hard for the artists who are on Spotify to get any kind of remuneration at all, you know, um, because the the payment that they actually give to the artists who they're streaming is an absolute pittance. Um, and you, you you hear stories about like was it some some head or CEO of Spotify said the artists are going to have to work harder and put out more albums because it's not realistic for them to think that they can just put out an album every few years and make a living from it you know stuff like that yeah. that is just infuriating to hear as you know as somebody who yeah has worked really hard trying like you know making music and ha- having that as my sole income for the last what, five or six years you know. So it's kind of like an exploitative relationship that Spotify has with the artists. Oh, absolutely. The- absolutely. Because obviously they're getting money for, you know, pe- people getting premium subscriptions and are signing up for however, I don't know how much it costs, like a tenner a month or 20 quid a month or whatever. <laughs> None of that has gone back to the artist's pockets, you know. So it's what like, way is it different on Bandcamp then? Is it? Well, in, in Bandcamp, you actually make money every time because, you know, people pay for your music. So the system on Bandcamp is that you can listen to something for free. Um, after you listen to it two or three times from the same IP address, you get a little sign coming up saying, basically, are you going to buy this? So it's like it says, oh, it's time to open thy heart and thy wallet. Um, you know, are you going to buy it or not? And if you say no, then this little heart breaks. Uh, <laughs> then if you say, yeah, it's like, oh, nice one. And then you buy the thing. But the thing is, when you actually pay Bandcamp the money, so obviously they take a cup, but the majority of that money goes to the actual artist, whether you're buying a record or just buying a digital album or whatever. Um, and what I really like is that over the lockdown as well, in recognition of the fact that all musicians and artists are experiencing hardship due to COVID, they had these Bandcamp Fridays where like every fortnight they would um, not charge the Bandcamp fees. So basically any money you gave to an artist, they would get the whole lot on these Bandcamp Fridays um and there's also an option if you want to give if you want to pay more for an album you can as well so if you're like yeah i want to support this band i want the album costs like you know 9.99 but you know send them at 20 quid or whatever to give them a bit extra you know because i want to support them you can do that as well so it's just it's a much more artist friendly um kind of system that they have over there you know and that's something that i would be much more in favor of supporting and it'd be really nice to kind of see a general shift you know people just people thinking about where their music comes from and you know how they're like interacting with that and are they really supporting the artists that they want to support like if you actually like an artist like why would you listen to them on spotify you know you're doing them a, a disservice like just go yeah go on to Bandcamp and you can listen to it see if you like it a few times and if you do just yeah send them a few bob it does feel like with the way that things are going at the minute that, for example, with the festival scene, that when festivals come back online, that they're going to be much smaller because of the numbers and stuff. And yeah. because of the way that artists are more and performers are more reliant on the people who are following them to actually support them. Like that we're kind of coming into this era of a stronger connection between the, the listeners and the artists. And also like, kind of a more selective era as well where you know the way the thing with Spotify is like it's unlimited but um, yeah. like a couple of years a few years ago I started collecting maybe like about six years ago collecting vinyls and the thing that I love most about uh, the, having the record is that like something that I kind of picked up from from 
my dad has got a really lovely record collection, but he knows like every Bob Dylan album that was ever released, when it came out, what studio yeah. it came from, the track listing, what was on the A side, what was on the B side, what was on the cover, like sometimes even who took the picture of it, what was, what was on the cover. Yeah. And it was that kind of thing that attracted me to starting to collect the vinyls again, is it's more like, uh, more like you're kind of like spending some quality time with the music yeah. and getting to know yeah. it and in a way like I feel like we're kind of coming into an era where that's becoming more important again where it's not like 30,000 people at a festival and an absolute abundance of lift all different stages and you can just end up at one anywhere that it's going to have to be smaller festivals with smaller lineups where you're consciously choosing to go and see like this is the band that I want to go and see therefore this is the festival I'm going to yeah no, it's interesting uh, saying that about your dad because I remember like back in probably like back in the nineties, mid nineties when I would have started buying records, I'd go into the record shop. You know, there was a few really great um, secondhand record shops around Dublin at that time. Um, there was was it like Freebirds? The one there was one on Eden Key anyway, like downstairs uh, from a newsagent. And I used to go down there, and sometimes I'd just buy an album because I liked the cover of it. You know. And like, oh, I've heard of that band. Oh, yeah, you know, it's five quid or whatever. I'll buy that. You know, it looks cool. And I'll bring it home and and you stick it on. And you would like, you know, spend time looking at the lyrics and reading the notes or whatever. And But you would you would spend time with it. And no matter what it was, you would give it, you know, you'd give it your time. And that the time and energy that you would put into it would, would be repaid. And you would, like, no matter what it was, you'd find something good about it. And you'd, you'd kind of just end up getting into it anyway because you'd spend that much time like you're after spending money on it and you have the things so it's like yeah i'm gonna listen to it again and again and you know it might be stuff that i listen to now but that that whole aspect is gone you know when we kind of the it just says a lot about the culture that we're into that you just want that like instant satisfaction of something and if it doesn't hit you straight away you're just like oh i'll just listen to the next thing and and it kind of you know um i think art and music and the kind of end result of this stuff is kind of very devalued in that it's it's just it's so available to to you without any like you don't have to put any effort into it at all you just literally have to click on a screen and you have a whole new album coming up and if it doesn't hit you within the first minute or two you can just go oh whatever turn it off stick on something else and it's all just there in front of you you know whereas it's it was like it was just such a different experience getting into new music back back then for me because it was, it was so much work you're paying your hard-earned money to get this like slab of vinyl so you're almost like well yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna find a way to get into this even if i don't like it at first i'm gonna just keep listening to it until i like it you know yeah, like more of an event yeah yeah absolutely but i haven't said that like you, you could still make an, an event like it, it, you don't have to have a vinyl collection to to make like the, your relationship with new music uh, more meaningful like you can still do that where like you're but it's but I guess the, the common theme is that you're taking the time to kind of like delve into the thing that you're listening to or that you're you're experiencing whatever yeah and I, I, I just think whatever you know you have to put energy into these things to get something out of it you know and I think what whatever energy you do put in it's always like repaid you know tenfold um I think, I mean, and don't get me wrong, there's so many, like, aspects of technology that I love. Like, I wouldn't be able to do the fire-drawn air shows that I'm doing now without, like, ready access to so much 
music and archival music just at my fingertips on the internet and stuff like that you know or like ripping stuff off youtube or whatever you know i just that wouldn't be possible without the technology we have but i think that it's if you kind of I don't know. I just think if if you're not conscious of it, you can easily just slip into that thing where you're like, oh, and you become just really just kind of uh, dazed and desensitized to like everything. You're just like, oh, whatever. It's just, you know, just another thing on my internet browser. Um, And I think, uh, I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame because now every every bit of music out there, somebody has sat down with that and they've put their time and energy and a lot of times their heart and their soul into it. And for that to become just, this disposable product that you know that is just so easily accessible to everybody and therefore doesn't hold that much value to people i think that's a big shame mm. yeah for sure and um, yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what i think about that well how have we have we delved into all the, the topics there we have delved <laughs> um Thanks a million for for spending the time here and having the chats. Class. Oh, not at all. It's a absolute pleasure, and to be able to just like, yeah, thanks for indulging me in my <laughs> strange hobbies. <laughs> um, so, usually, I suppose, kind of finish up with asking how people can find your stuff. But I'm pretty sure that by this stage, everyone who's listening to this is already going to know about the Fire on Your Podcast, which is like on all of the podcast platforms really as far as I can see uh, yeah yeah it is now and I'm really glad that I did that because it was only I was only putting it up on Mixcloud before and a uh, mate of mine Johnny Dillon who does the really excellent uh, Blurry Bailedish podcast uh, Folklore Fragments he was saying oh no basically what you do is stick up on SoundCloud you link it to this and that and then it's just going to be up everywhere and I was like oh deadly yeah why don't I just do that uh, so <laughs> I haven't haven't looked back and yeah i mean yeah just type in fire john air somewhere on the internet and i'll, I'll come up and actually there was there was one other thing that i was going to ask you about <laughs> right um, <laughs> was about, about patreon patreon yeah yeah actually i was going to bring that up there when we were talking about before just um you know kind of being in closer contact with people who want to support you and people being selective um and having that relationship with and i was going to say because yeah you know yourself obviously you've got your own patreon as well i think that's a really great model like um, i remember we were chatting about it uh, it must have been back in may or something like that there i think it was actually before your patreon really kind of kicked off properly um, yeah maybe and i think i've only started doing it it was like september or something maybe yeah so it was before that when yeah. we were chatting about it last time and um yeah it's i think it's a it's a really cool platform next like you say, like to so people kind of like so grateful. Like I've heard you talking about this on Fire Drawing Year as well, when you hear people saying, Oh, we're I'm so grateful to the people who've been supporting the podcast. <laughs> then, like, but then yeah. it's true though. <laughs> I know, it really is. Like you know, because I used to uh, you know, I'm kind of quite cynical sometimes and you hear people saying things that and you're going, oh, fuck off. Yeah, you're so grateful, yeah. But then you know that actually like fills my heart with such joy. Like uh, sometimes you know, you kind of look at it, especially when people started signing up. It was like nearly in tears. Look, I was like, what? These people want to support me? <laughs> it's amazing. And then all of a sudden, then you, you've you become one of those people who are like, oh my God, guys, I, I'm so grateful. But it's yeah, true. But, but it is classic. Like, that's actually one of the main reasons why we are doing the podcast 
fortnightly now instead of doing it weekly was to be able to just kind of like um, be in more contact with people who, who are supporting yeah. the show. And because I think that that's like the beauty of the podcast format is that you're putting something out there and it becomes accessible for everybody and then you're kind of like building this relationship like yeah. in a way with the people that are listening or they're building it with you and you're just kind of forming kind of a, kind of like a little group of people who are kind of like interested in, in the topics at hand and like the thing yeah. I kind of feel about this podcast is that like the topics sometimes there are things that people aren't aren't that aware of or familiar with or um something that's new or from an area that because the topics are so like varied that you, there might be someone listening to this one who's like a big Lancome fan but then they may, and they might come and listen to the one next week it could be about something that they haven't got a clue about and yeah, it just kind of starts, yeah. it starts the conversations and like people can kind of talk about it and stuff and then yeah yeah so it has been good and um well I think yeah. it's 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 amazing that's like it's a it's a two-way thing as well because actually since I've started doing the Patreon I've gotten in contact with like some really fucking interesting people that have signed up to it and you know we just started writing to each other and you're like well I never would have never would have like found this uh, contact and this communication with these people I wouldn't have known about them they wouldn't have known about me like if this hadn't set up you know um, and that's a really amazing part of it that I wasn't I didn't really think about you know I think maybe it's like somewhat connected to what you were saying about viewing like art and stuff as not being as um, you know like just disposable and throwaway is the, the thing with the podcast which I don't even know maybe I mean I, I've said it a few times before on this podcast but I don't know if it's something that people would be aware of or I don't really, actually I'm not even sure I'm sure I mean it must be something that you experience as well but the, making the podcast it's not like I'm making the podcast putting it out there and then it's just as a one-way ticket for everyone to listen to because like, I'm really getting something that I'm making the podcast as well. Like, yeah. Oh, like, totally. Just doing, this, doing this chat and talking to other people yeah. and having the, the contact with people like during the first lockdown, doing the podcast was one of my main forms of like communication with the outside world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was doing no, so much I for me. It, like, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. And even, yeah, for me to be able to like, you know, because the, the stuff that I'm coming up with on the podcast and you know finding connections between these songs or finding very, i'm like i didn't know about this before i'm literally just finding this because i'm looking into it for the podcast and so it's all like a, a new journey for me as well you know and for me to just have the excuse to do that and to and you know to have a purpose to do that and not be just like oh i'm wasting my time just like fucking faffing around on the internet i'm like no i'm actually doing this and i'm making this thing because of it it's, it's really amazing yeah, and and the people are on the other side that kind of like are really interested in it as well. They yeah, kind of like yeah. Completes the cycle or whatever. Yeah, oh, I just I feel like I'm just really really grateful to be in this position in life, you know, where I can look into the things that like really like interest me and that I'm passionate about, and that other people get stuff that are, are getting the same feeling from it as well. You know, that's like it's it's magic. Class. Cool. That's the <laughs> that's <it>. that's <laughs> nice one. Oh no, fuck here. That was classic. Well, ah, oh, not at all. Fucking Annalyn. That was uh, such a pleasure to do. Absolutely. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Annalyn O'Carlan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is supported and funded by the listeners of the show. 
through Patreon. So if you'd like to support the Rebel Matters podcast and get behind what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters, where you will find the three various tiers of support that you can pick from, all of which are named after our favourite native Irish trees. That's all from us this week. Akarja Gale, Sokajin Kedarella, Slanga Foyle, Augustini Fiera. Thank you.